Welcome to LOA Today. I'm Walt Thiessen. With me on the show today, Debbie G and Neo Positivity. This is your daily dose of happy. We are so happy you decided to join us today. And it's Friday. Happy Friday, everybody. We're loving it. We're smiling. We're joyful. We got Debbie. We got Neo. We got a guest named Dr. Alan Weiser. We got it all. Let thoughts become things in the video. Love that. What's on? The, I can't read what the cup says. What does it say, Debbie? Cup of gratitude. Cup of gratitude. Oh, of course. Yes. Very, Good idea. Very cool. Love that. So, yeah, i got a lot to talk about today, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Debbie's already psyched. I mean, she was psyched before I even hit the button. you were you were just like on cloud nine oh this is gonna be good you were saying (laughs) oh it's gonna be absolutely incredible because i don't know if you can get any better topic than chronic pain healing and uh the psychology behind it which is what i'm kind of guessing is where that we're going with this so yeah i'm excited well that's completely true the work that i've done with chronic pain and with the chronically mentally ill is actually helped to evolve a model that isn't related to those specific problems. It's it's relevant to any kind of persistent pain, whether it's emotional or physical. Oh, I'm just excited. This is cool. Okay, yeah. so let me do the formal introduction. So Dr. Alan Weiser, he is a clinical psychologist. He has uh, years and years of experience. He also was a trial attorney. We're going to ask him about that one in just a moment. Uh, I mean, that's quite a, a, a migration, a trial attorney, psychologist. Okay, yeah. Um, but we'll get to that one. But you have, in your own words, you have basically pioneered a new approach to pain relief. And you've got to give us an overview. What's that? What does that look like? What does the landscape look like? Yeah, I would qualify. Not pain relief, pain mastery. Pain mastery. Okay. Wow. Fair enough. So this, this is this is a very important concept, right? Because when you have, I don't use the word chronic anymore, actually. It's persistent. All right. Chronic tends to feel like a life sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it isn't necessarily the case at all, especially with current developments in medical science. So the goal is to really put you back in charge. That's what mastery means. You may still be having pain. You may still be having an impact on functioning, but you get to be in charge, as you all probably know. Chronic pain tends to disempower people and have them become increasingly dependent, increasingly dysfunctional, and much of that can be reversed, if not totally eliminated. The problem is the medical system, which I am not being critical of, but is not well designed to support empowerment, to support patient. For example, most chronic pain patients don't know that they actually have a job description. The doctors don't tell them what their role is. They don't tell them it's a partnership. And yet they're going to be working together for years. Imagine being hired in a job where nobody tells you what your job description is and they expect (laughs) expect you to deliver. Well, on top of that, not even knowing you were hired for a job. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the idea about it is that if you work on mastery, then you will probably more than likely experience relief from pain. And I can explain why in a few minutes. But more importantly, it's about, for many people, recapturing their lives and going from being in a survival mode to actually thriving. We, we know this, there are examples all over the place. People like Stephen Hawking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, other people that overcome things we think are impossible to overcome, right? We all love this, right? That's the, the part I find fascinating is we love it, we look at it, we applaud it, we wanna be like that. We don't understand that every human being has the potential to do that. Mm. It's part of what we have. Millions of years of evolution has given you infinite potential. So what this model does is it it identifies, it goes like, okay, evolution designed you to meet any challenge, whether it's COVID, chronic pain, possible nuclear war, you're designed to find a way to survive. But what most most people don't necessarily know that, right? So they may easily feel disempowered. Uh, The second part is that that comes with a toolkit, right? Most people don't know that evolution has provided you with an existential immune system. It isn't just physical immunity, it's emotional, psychological, and existential immune system. But then the question is, what are those? How do you use that? The cool thing about this approach, and and forgive me if I seem too excited about it, but I've just seen it work across 2,000 patients, is the tools are really cool, and they work. And I get to practice 10 hours a day, so uh, that's one of the reasons why I really want people to get a hand on this. But here's a caveat. The book is 370 pages. Most chronic pain patients, when I meet them, they're tired of treatment. 
They are tired of being disappointed. They are looking for the magic bullet, right? So somebody who's not being referred to me or who I'm talking to up front, they may look at that and go like, that's a book. That's a lot to read. And, and oh, I'm going to have to engage in serious self-discovery and personal change. I just want a good pill, right, or another surgery. Wasn't well, so that I think what we this, were taught, Alan? I'm sorry. Isn't that what isn't isn't that what we were taught? We were taught a good pill. We were taught this is I, I okay. Now you're getting me excited. So let's just say, and the reason yeah. why is that chronic pain was something I dealt with for forever. For a very, very long time, I've had all kinds of diagnoses from polyneuropathy to this to that. I was in the pharmaceutical uh, pocket. I was in that space. You know, I chose I chose to leave it and since then have been on a journey. But something that you said was so powerful because this is the part people don't understand. That in order to make a change, it might be necessary to do something different and that something different is what I'm hearing that you're that you're bringing up so I'm going to invite people who do suffer to really open and expand themselves to the possibility that there may be another way to do this and and I'm walking living breathing proof that there is another way I'm dying to hear what what is involved within your modality and also I'm curious are you into like Bruce Lipton Greg Braden uh, Joe Dispenza, people like that who are really talking about the efficacy of um, epigenetics. I'm quite familiar with that. I'm actually more into Sadhguru. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Sadhguru. Uh, Another I, how Sadhguru. could you not love Sadhguru? Really? <laughs> I mean, geez, he's like the bomb. But I yeah. mean, in, in, in respect to scientists and the ones that are out there talking about our genes and our right. belief systems, that's right. specifically, yeah. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that we we come into this world with a system prepared to handle anything. But we don't necessarily know that. We don't necessarily know about it or how to use it. And many people throughout their childhood, in many ways, are restricted from having that operate fully. And for example, uh, I see patients from every walk of life, from guys at roof to people who are captains of industry and movers and shakers. Part of the fun of my practice, I have a wide range of people that I see because there's no rules about who gets chronic pain, right? But the one common denominator on the people who struggle the most is that people, despite their success and their accomplishments, find out that they don't love themselves completely, that it's conditional. Well, why is that important? Because conditional love restricts infinite potential. You can't fully actualize and deal with what you can deal with unless you are completely behind yourself. You are completely unified. I always ask a person, an interesting question I ask my patients, if you were rating your friendship with yourself on a zero to 10 scale and 10 is best friends, where are you? I have never met a patient who said 10 or even a nine, but they didn't know. Right. And I go like, you're going to spend your entire life with yourself right down to the last breath. You're the only one and you are not best friends with yourself. You got a problem. Oh, God, can I just please look? I love me, but it's taken forever to get to this point. And I I'm going to say I'm I'm between a seven and an eight right now. I love you. Thank you. I love me. Thank you. But I'm not I'm not 100% there. Can I just own that? I know. I know that in some spaces, I don't think that I show up fully for myself sometimes. So I'm just going to own it. So anybody out there watching that's going, oh, that's bullshit. I want you to just hear what he just said and hear my truth. Mm-hmm. Just thought I'd add that in. Well, thank you. That's that's really important. You know, here's a here's a concept that you might like. Some of this idea, and I want to get into what you were asking about. Some of this work starts with concepts. All right. So it's talking about, a, a, you know, a, an existential immune system. Well, when did you hear of that before? You know, who's talking about that? I, I've had some very serious training as a psychologist. I spent, spent 10 years working in a state mental hospital, working with a very strong psychology department. I went through psychoanalysis. This this model transcends that. It incorporates recovery. It incorporates rehabilitation. It incorporates every aspect because The key to understanding how to help people with chronic pain is realizing it is not just a physical injury. It creates collateral damage. With a typical chronic pain patient, they can be up to 200 collateral damages. It's like the building falls down in an earthquake, right? 
But then you have injuries, you have water shortages, you have power shortages, you have all of these consequences, right? And those collateral damages then feed back into the pain problem and recovery. So for example, you have sleep disruption with chronic pain, which is typical, that increases pain by 50%, 50%, right? But when did any doctor ever tell you, if you're not sleeping well, you're gonna have 50% added to your pain? And it'll undermine your recovery because your immune system isn't rebooting. So the, the system is not looking at collateral damages. It is not looking at it holistically. It is not looking at it existentially. If somebody tells me they lost their job, I go like, that's information, but I still don't know what it means to them. And what it means to them could be quite different than what it means to me. The power is in searching for meaning. The power is in searching for what really inspires people. And that's what I go looking for. What what really inspires you? Who are you? What are you really about? And there's some cool, very straightforward approaches and techniques to use to get to that. But that's the general concept. Start thinking differently about it. Your self-esteem has zero to do with who you are. Absolutely nothing to do with who you are, right? It is, I'm infinite potential. I love that. Who you are, work in progress. You don't like it, change it. To attach your self-esteem to something as transitory as who you are, does that make any sense? <laughs> I don't think point. so. <laughs> right? So a lot of this is creating those logical challenges to people and go like, you need to start rethinking your own sense of experience and how you relate to your own existence. So really? sorry, I, I can go on about that part of it. Well, actually, there's no apology necessary. It is yeah. it is brilliant what you're talking about here, and I'm just resonating with it. I'm going to back up. When I did, when chronic pain, you don't sleep as well. No, nobody ever told me that that was going to then make the pain worse, but it kind of makes sense, everybody, right? This, that's amazing that you're bringing this up. And I also love that. And I love that. And you're right. It is infinite potential. I, do you like Kyle Cease or do you just love that? I'm sorry, who? Nope, you don't. See, so that's the thing. I, that's like a thing. I love that. And we know I say that all the time because that's that thing. Even that, even the stuff we don't that you just do. I'm curious. So is it a lot of the brain neural, neuro linguistic programming? Is that kind of what you're doing with this as well? Well, what we're really talking about is neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. Oh yeah. God, I love you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, okay. neuroplasticity, as you probably all know, is that the brain changes in response to experience, right? Right. So it's really interesting. Have any of you heard of this concept of central sensitization or chronic pain syndrome? You heard that, you heard that expression? Chronic pain syndrome. I haven't heard the first part, though. Not yeah, the first well, one, no. Well, what happens is, you know how this works, right? We as human beings every day are getting all kinds of experiences, sensory experiences, thoughts, whatever, feelings. So you just picture the brain with all these different inputs, right? So it takes all of those inputs in combination to change the structure of the brain, and it does. All right? But imagine you're a chronic pain patient, and for years you go through, the doctors don't really know what's wrong with you. They don't really know why patients, why you aren't benefiting from treatment. Well, now your brain's being reshaped, right? You're telling the brain, we don't know why you're having pain. What do you think the brain's going to do in response to that? It's going to increase your sensitivity to pain. Sure. Right. So if you want to reverse the process, but it isn't just the physical part of it. If the person's life has been affected in a dramatic way, which usually happens, uh, their sense of identity is gone. Their self-worth self is down the drain. Their relationships are trash. They have too much stress on their plate. If you don't correct those, then you're ignoring a whole portion of the experience that a person's had that puts them into this dynamic in the first place. Well, so the, the term that you mentioned, it, you, you finished with the... Um, syndrome, but what was the first part? I missed that part. You mean the concept of this or? Well, there was a label that you applied. I can't remember what the label uh, It's was. called regional pain syndrome. Regional pain syndrome. Yeah, and what they're talking about is the brain is plastic, and when a person is a chronic pain patient, their brain changes. And so sometimes they can have pain where there's actually no injury. But that does not mean that it's in their head. It just simply means that the brain has changed and it's changed because not enough of what's happened to the person is being treated. And that's why when I work with people and we hit it from a holistic level, over time what happens is we change the brain again, only we change it holistically. 
The problem with medical intervention to change that or going to physical therapy is it's only touching on one part of the experience. Right. So this, the reason why this works is because it treats the person as a whole person. It treats them as an individual. You have to know a person's uniqueness. No, everybody's different, right? Even you think about this, right? You have a chronic pain patient. Let's say you hurt your back, right? You go to your doctor. Does the doctor go over your physical history? Does the doctor even ask you if you have a history of being an athlete? The answer is no. Now, why is it important to know if a person has a history of being an athlete? I've been a martial artist for 50 years. If I went to a physical therapist who didn't appreciate what that means, they wouldn't understand why I'm telling them that their work looks like a joke. You know, compared to me training 25 hours a week, you're going to tell me that's supposed to help me? So the individual, the background, the history, these are all things that are absent. And then they just contribute to it. A lot of chronicity is created by the system. A lot of chronicity? Making pain into something that becomes chronic. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. What an interesting word. Right. Making you into a chronic pain patient instead of a person with pain that they're mastering. That's the difference. Right. It's not an identity. It's not a destination. It's not a number. You don't have to sacrifice who you are. If you have to suffer through this, we can reinvent ourselves. I mean, we're not one trick ponies. How many different ways can you be true to who you are? Now we got, now we got to ask the million dollar question, but before we do that for Walt, I'm going to throw this up there. I just want everybody to either type in hashtag overcoming pain in the comments or hashtag I love myself. Uh, in the comments, two things that are very, um, very important, um, that, yeah, we need to do. But million dollar question, because, and that's why I'm so quiet, because, um, this is, this is an episode for me. I, I, I should be listening. I, I'm, I'm one of those persistent pain people, um, that it has altered so many different parts of my life. So what takeaways can you give somebody, you know, outside of go get my package for 9.99? $99.99 on my website. What what practical can you give somebody to try today? Something to just help somebody? Because whatever you give is going to get someone through today so much better up here, you know, in their mind. That's a beautiful gift. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I think, like I said, it's really hard to get that in in this kind of dialogue or looking at the book. For starters, if what I'm saying is true, then you've heard something that you didn't know. That you actually have more power to deal with this than anybody told you you had. That you actually don't have to be nearly as dependent on providers as you thought you did. There's two chapters in this book on how to be more successful with treatment. It analyzes all the things that can go wrong in treatment and tells you exactly what to do about it. For example, how often have you been to the doctor and feel like you don't get enough answers to your questions? <laughs> Every time. <laughs> Is there a time that doesn't happen? I want to know. Yeah. Well, I'm sure. I, I, I can tell you exactly how to avoid that. You want to take away? You're going to see any of your providers. You prepare your questions in advance. You base the questions not on what's logical or intelligent. You base them on what makes you anxious about your condition. For example, what's my prognosis? What activities can I get back to? You send those questions in advance to the provider with a request that they be placed in your chart, which you have a legal right to do. Now, I can tell you from working with doctors in a hospital, if you wanted to get the doctor's attention, put it in the chart. All right. The other advantages are anybody that sees that chart after that doctor, you're not going to have to repeat your questions. It's there. If the doctor does not document answers to your questions, it's malpractice. If you think they're documenting what you say in their meetings, they're not. So a lot of that information gets lost. So as a starting point, you put your doctors on notice. Here are my questions. Now, if you tell me in the meeting we don't have enough time, that's fine, but I want to know when you're going to give me the answers. And if I was to show you a typical set of questions, believe me, they're much more detailed than most people know. What you want to tap into is the doctor's experience, their statistical knowledge. You know, I've got a herniated disc. Well, how many patients have low pain to extreme pain, everything in between? So you prepare those in advance, submit them in advance, right, with an agenda, just like a business meeting, you go, here's what I'd like to accomplish in our 15 minute meeting today, doctor. All right. Very different, right? Whether they live up to it or not, you put them back in a position where they're supposed to deliver, right? Then you will all probably appreciate this. Uh, people think that these 15 minute meetings aren't enough time. I don't know if any of you think that, 
but I can tell you why they're actually a huge amount of time. How long is a typical TV commercial? <laughs> Three minutes. 60 seconds. It's 10 to 20 seconds. And how long does a typical commercial feel? <laughs> right? Times all the time. You, you know, why does it feel that way? It feels that way because if you're going to spend a lot of money to do a commercial, I'm sure you know how to do this with your own show. You compress a lot of information into a short space of time. Mm. It's like that last 20 seconds in a football game. I, I had to figure out why they're still playing because you can get across the field in 20 seconds. Right? So you plan the meeting. All right. For example, you research everything that you can look up that they don't need to tell you. They don't need to tell you what a herniated disc is or even what the standard treatment is. You want to ask them about things you cannot look up. So you start organizing the meeting. You start making that meeting more like a well-run commercial, and you will find great value out of that 15 minutes. So there's other strategies. There's, there's lots of communication problems. There's a lot of other things that go on systematically. So, you know, to get back to what you were asking about, that's one of the takeaways. If nothing else, look at the chapter that talks about what you do with treatment to be more successful, because that's a primary focus when I start with patients, fixing it, getting it taken care of. It's not just about counseling. It's also about management. It's where my legal background comes in really handy. Uh, I have no problem being assertive with providers, and I always get more information than doctors give patients. So I try and educate the patients on how to be fully empowered in those meetings. For example, do any of you know how to talk to a doctor when he's making you angry without alienating him? Well, I verbal... would have to use a tool of curiosity. We use we learn this thing called verbal judo in the police academy. It works. <laughs> it verbal works. judo, I got it. What is verbal judo? There, Neil. Yeah, what is that? It, I got it. It's basically there. where you would use your words um, to win this verbal battle, non-confrontationally. Kind of like right. outsmarting, outwitting someone. Um, I've got an easier way to do it. Okay. I mean, that sounds great. But let's say that a doctor says, uh, you should do this treatment. It's going to be really good for you, right? Mm -hmm. But you're sitting there going, I've done that before and it didn't really help. And I've already had a lot of bad experience in treatment. So he may be feeling good about it, but I'm not feeling particularly reassured, right? So what do I do with that? Well, most patients probably will just go along with it and won't say anything. But if you wanted to talk to the doctor, what would you say that would get you what you want without alienating the doctor? Well, I would just speak my truth. I hear, I hear that you feel that this would be this, that it, I am not in alignment with that, nor do I want to do that. So what other options may you have, might you have? Okay. Ask for a second opinion. That old rattle was cave. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. I would, well, I would be curious about what other things that they would, that, that, what other things can you offer? What are, what else is out there? Okay. So you've already alienated half the doctors. Yeah, probably. But poor, poor doctors. Slight, slight, a slight twist on this. Not that you said anything wrong. You didn't. For the most secure people, they'd appreciate what you're saying. But if you said, look, I appreciate that you are telling me something you think could be really helpful to me. Mm. So thank you, doctor. That's great. Now, if for some reason, which may not make any sense to you, that made me feel anxious, would you want me to tell you? Beautiful. Mm. Freaking, that's, that's like so good. Like, I love that. So you're right? To, the doctor you're gonna the doctor how says, you feel. Yeah, if the doctor says no or expresses no interest, then you're seeing the wrong person. Mm. And you go like, I, so I need reassurance. And then you say the things you said. Debbie, where you're kind of going, here's the reasons why I'm having That's, that feeling. So what do we do with that, right? Oh, beautiful emotional intelligence. But you slip that part right in the middle with authenticity and vulnerability that we so skip over all the time. That's where nice. the power is, the common denominator, right? Everybody knows anxiety. Everybody understands that. It's being vulnerable. It's hard for a lot of patients. But it's power. It's powerful. And your, your judo may be just as good. I don't know. But I like simplicity. It's the simplest thing for me to say, I appreciate. You start out with the validation, right, which is legitimate because I don't know if this doctor is having good or bad intent. Appreciate what you're doing, okay? But as your partner in treatment, right, some of you may remember the good old days before managed care when the doctor would spend time and actually say how you're feeling about treatment. True. You know, Walt may remember that. I remember yeah. that. I remember that. I, I grew up in Diamond Bar. I, Dr. Donald E. Quartz was my doctor. <laughs> In 1972 and 75, you know, I was born in 68 and I had a hometown, I had a doctor yeah. 
in a small, well, it's so small for right. California. Totally. It was incredible. Yeah. So you can reverse the consequences of managed care, right? Which don't allow for that. You can reverse it by how you interact. Right. This is why I decided years ago not to try and change the medical system, which I think would have been grandiose anyway. But I'd rather empower patients to be able to get the value that they're lacking because of the design of the system. You know, when I came out here from New York, I had been with the same doctor for about 35 years and he was really good. I sat down with my new doctor and I said, if I leave your office with one question ever, I will never come back. Ooh. Right. I never did. And actually, he usually had questions I hadn't even thought of. And that might have been fine if I said nothing, but I was very clear about my expectations. And I don't care if they set me up for 15 minutes. They work for me. I don't work for them. Mm-hmm. So chronic pain patients become desperate, though. They're they're very fearful about shaking the tree, about creating any distance with any of their mm-hmm. providers. That's Just true. Vulnerable approach breaks right through that because no doctor is going to get angry at you for being a human being. And if they do, then you don't want to be working with them. So I don't know if that relates to what you asked about with takeaways, Neil. But Yeah, no, no, that was... That, that, that point was, of attention, right? You still have a physical problem. You need to get the most benefit out of that, right? Yeah, no, I've whole page worth of notes. I've been writing since <laughs> you've been talking. I, I take a lot of notes. Um, yeah, the other, all the other those. Thing, if you if you say to people, this is getting back to Debbie's question earlier, uh, and forgive me if I'm interrupting. We talked about the existential immune system. Well, what is that? Let me give you a sample of what's powerful about this. All human experience eventually is, is translated into thoughts and feelings, right? And then depending on your thoughts and feelings, that leads to action. So that's the bottom line, right? The human experience, thoughts and feelings, right? The interesting question is what creates thoughts and feelings? Perception. You're the first person I've asked that to that got it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> you beat me to it, Debbie. I was coming, I was coming out of that. <laughs> coming out with that. You think it'd be obvious, but that's great. But then the question is what determines perception? And Debbie probably experience. Opinion. Experience. Behavior experience. Close. Actually awareness, which incorporates awareness. Mm, That's a better word, yeah. So and all therapies raise awareness, right? All therapies raise consciousness. Back in the sixties and seventies, Debbie, you know this, it was all about consciousness raising, right? It was all about moving into yeah. that larger field of energy, that larger field of information, right? So that's why you remember how you saw the world at age five or 10 or 15 or 20 or 25, right? It changes, right? Because you learn, you become more experienced, you become more aware. If I tell people that they have infinite potential, if I tell them their self-love is not dependent on who they are, that changes their awareness. If I tell people, and this is getting to the tools, that emotions are the most important part of your existential immune system, that emotions actually have a functional purpose. They're not just an experience. They're tools and they're more important than thinking. Thinking is actually compromised and not nearly as impressive as people think it is. Just look at the state of the world we're in right now. If you want to see how thinking gets distorted, right? It's a true. will never fail you. The expression, trust your gut comes from understanding what anxiety really is. Speaking of gut, though, I want to actually, I, I want to, I want to ask you this question because it's really been in, in my reality, gut health and the gut health and things like that that have to do with our immune system. It's been, I've been learning all about how our hormones and everything are, are created, like our serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin and things like that are actually not created in our brain, but rather in our, in our gut. So I've been reading that that is another thing that needs to be addressed when it comes to uh, men- our mental health and our chronic dealing with anything that we call chronic pain. What do you feel about that? Do you work with your patients on that level too? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because the body is a system, right? Our experience is a system. And we all know, you. I'm certainly, you guys know, this is not all there is, right? Uh, there's a lot more to what we are. And most of us don't get to experience that, but most of us who are seekers do. Uh, you know, my alignment with this started at an early age. I don't know if any of you saw my own bio on this one, but this whole journey that led me to where I am right now, 
I didn't know until fairly recently, actually. But when I was 12 and a half, I broke my neck. Really? Wow. Now, here's the important part of the story. So I was one of those fearless, headstrong kids. So I decided I want to do backflip on a diving board. I'll figure it out, right? Who needs a lesson, right? <laughs> Did you know when you do a backflip on a diving board, you're supposed to dive out, not straight up? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's, that's painful to yeah. think about. Yeah, well, I hit the board. They took me to the hospital. The doctor comes in. I'm in a cast, right? I know I've broken my neck. And he literally, this is a while back, but he says to me, if you don't die and you're not paralyzed, you will be a cripple for the rest of your life. Right? I'm 12 and a half. Great doctor. Yeah. Okay. This nearly destroyed my life. I, I was in the hospital over a month. Uh, I got out of there because I couldn't stand being there, but I was still on my back in a brace for a year. I didn't die and I didn't get paralyzed, but I had to learn how to walk again because I was so atrophied, right? But here's the part that's critical to what we're talking about. Nobody knew how frightened I was. Nobody knew how angry I was with myself. Even I didn't know how angry I was with myself that I'd gotten hurt. All right. And so I was funny. No big deal, no problem, right? I did not attend to any of the impact in my life. Twelve and a half, I was being trashed in the middle of going through middle school. You know, developmentally, just think about that kind of challenge, right? Uh, what I didn't understand is why I was flunked out of high school. You know, if you'd asked me at the time, I would have said, I'm stupid. I'm not that smart, right? Mm-hmm. That's two PhDs. Obviously, I have some intelligence. But what I never remembered until three years ago in a session with a patient was what I said to myself when the doctor said what he said. What did you say to yourself? Stupid, stupid, stupid. Look what you've done to yourself. Holy shit. Okay, listen, 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 listen. I broke my back when I was 17. I was in a body, I was in the whole brace thing, the one that immobilized like my left leg. Going to school. Kids are mean, aren't they? I might have been 16, actually. I might have been younger. I might have only been 16. But but I wanted to say something about what you said. Yeah. It hit my heart so strong. Was talking about what it felt. What what did you actually feel like at that moment? I don't think I've ever really thought about that till just this very second. It literally brings tears to my eyes to remember that. That was the scariest shit on the planet. I flew off a toboggan, landed in hard-packed snow. I, I, I was stupid. Like, I literally remember that, that, that. So thank you. That's huge. Yeah. And the interesting part is look at all the years it took me to remember that. I only remember this three years ago, right? I never even questioned why did you think you were stupid? Because I determined that I wasn't as I went through school, but I never questioned why was I thinking that in the first place? Hmm. So the consequences of not dealing with the whole person, how they're really being affected across the board. The only reason why it didn't end the way it could have ended is because no matter what happens to you, including becoming psychotic or having chronic pain, you cannot destroy the real person, right? You cannot destroy that person. Even with my psychotic patients in the hospital, I was able to get to that person. So what happens? I go through high school. I don't do any sports. I don't do anything. I consider myself fragile. I'm afraid to do this, right? By the time I got to college, I go, you know what? Screw this. If I'm going to go out, it has to be on my terms. And maybe they'll be right, and I'll regret having tried something, but I've got to do it on my terms. So that innate fighting spirit, which is something I came to learn about myself later on. So what do I do? I signed up for judo and trampoline. <laughs> I, I, remember, I'm told that I'm fragile, right? You don't do anything. You were telling yourself they were fragile. Not just you were told. You were telling yourself. If, you, if you've done judo, you know what we're talking about. And I still remember that first throw. Right. Because in judo, you're slamming people to the ground. Mm. And I remember going through the air and thinking to myself, well, it's going one way or the other. Mm. But I had no regrets. I had no regrets because it was on my terms. I was able to get back to who I am. That allowed me to move my way through it. That kept me moving through my profession as an attorney, everything I've done beyond that. I spent a lot of I've had a lot of experiences that have helped me to learn and grow as a person that eventually led to this other work. Why did I stop being an attorney? I love being an attorney and there's a lot about it I still make use of, but 
I'm more interested in the questions than the answers. And that's the difference between being an attorney and being a psychologist. Attorneys are all about having the right answer. Psychologists are about having the right question. Uh, the two together, they work really well. I don't think I would have been happy with only one, but it was a perfect transition. Plus, I, as I became more secure as a person, I didn't need the protection of having a career like an attorney. Attorney's a shield, right? It's an instant power position in society. And my own personal development led to a point where I go, I, I don't need that. I, I don't need to have what I do for a living represent me. I don't need any props actually to represent me. I am me and that's enough. Yeah, we can see so, I think, how, how it really works well for you. I mean, it plays yeah, that, that personal journey, role. that rediscovering who I really am, what really motivates me has allowed me to work my way through the challenges throughout my life. Yeah. I, I, I want to bring that. something else in here. There's something that's really, it, it's been on my mind for about the last 20 minutes and we, we started to get into it. I want to really touch on it here. Um, okay. What I consider to be the biggest challenge facing the medical community as a whole, not just the parts that deal with pain, although that's a significant portion, but the entire medical community. And I think we saw it through COVID. I think we see it on a day-to-day -day basis with the way all kinds of um, doctor calls and hospital visits and so forth play out. It's all tied down to one emotion that I believe is not only not addressed well, but is actually leveraged by the medical community to our detriment. And that is fear. I think that fear is the issue that is the elephant in the room that is not addressed by the community. Just how damn And I was hoping to address that for a moment. Cutting out, Walt. You cut out a little bit, Walt. I'm cutting out. Yeah, I'm seeing stuff disappear. I don't know what part of that did, that you heard. Uh, I, I, kind of, I kind of got every, the basic idea, but can you Every be, other word. Yeah, I've I heard about the part of bad fear and its role in the medical community, but what do you see as a specific consequence? What I, what I was trying, I consider it to be the biggest issue, and I was wondering to address what you think of when you, when you think about fear in the context of medical treatment and the way medical treatment is conducted today, and more importantly, how can the patient deal with fear in the face of an entire system that refuses to address it? Okay. Uh, I wouldn't say it's true about the entire system. I've had experiences with really good doctors who really know how to do their job and, and don't do any of the things we're talking about. But managed care by definition creates a lot of these problems. Uh, how are you supposed to conduct a proper practice when you have to see 10, 12, 15 patients a day? Uh, you don't have, you don't get paid for consulting with, with other providers. You don't get paid for writing really good notes. So part of the problem is that they're not in the best position to provide the best information, and that contributes to the fear that you were talking about. Uh, some of the stuff we talked about earlier about how to be more empowered can also offset a lot of that fear because you can do things that can make the system more responsive to your needs. But the other part about this, Walt, that's really important is going back to the techniques, anxiety, right? And fear is a, not another emotion. It's a high form of anxiety. Anxiety always represents a threat to your needs. You'll never feel anxious unless some need is being threatened. So if you want to deal with the fear that the medical community creates, then you have to determine what, what needs are being threatened. Is it your health and safety? Is it your mental well-being? Is it your physical recovery? And then you do what people normally try and do is, all right, what can I do to lessen the fear? For example, you come through the door prepared at the level that I prepare my patients, trust me, because I've seen this happen over and over again. I work with some of the best people in town, the doctors, and believe me, they actually like this a lot. It makes their job a lot easier, right? Uh, patients begin to feel less fearful. They begin to feel like they have agency. They can send the meal back at the restaurant without worrying about the owner of the restaurant throwing them out. You guys ever watch Seinfeld? <laughs> Not in a while, but yes. Getting thrown out isn't usually what people are worried about when they send their food back. <laughs> I know, I know, but there was that episode where Elaine goes to her doctor and she's got a rash, and he steps out of the room. She looks at the chart. She sees that he wrote the word difficult down about her. She tries to ask him a question, and he basically throws her out. He won't even see her. The whole show is her going to different doctors. They look at the chart. She asks questions. They write something else. They throw her out. Then the very last scene, she's at a veterinarian, and he's about to take her in there when the phone rings and see AMA calling him, right? Now, that's an extreme. 
But that level of fear, when you're so dependent on a condition that cannot seem to be resolved, is along with managed care and all the faults in that system is what I think you're referring to well, that it's that obstacle needs to be addressed. But, that, and, but I think there's also another element too, and it came out during COVID. Um, it's not something that has been discussed the right way, but the entire community approach to dealing with, to basically keep the, the hospitals from overflowing was to scare everybody into wearing masks, social distancing, and so forth. And I'm not saying there was no value to any of that stuff. I'm, don't, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that at all. I'm simply saying they wanted people to be afraid. I even interviewed somebody on the program who was an investigator into placebo and no placebo effect, and she stated on the program she was glad that the medical community was taking the approach of scaring people into wearing masks because it was the only approach that was going to work. And, and this is not something that I think is just limited. I think this is like across the board. People in the medical community have bought into the idea that there are good times to scare patients. And I think, it, I think it's damaging. That's a very interesting idea. I'd have to give some more thought to it. Uh, you know, COVID is a unique event. And the politics around it have made it much more complicated than it needed to be. I mean, I cannot remember any time in my life, Walt, I don't know about you, when something was going on like polio or some other conditions where this level of confusion and misinformation was making it hard for people to know what actually made sense or not. So I don't know how much of what the medical community is doing, and I don't argue with what you're saying, has to do with that or has to do with who knows. What I do know is the consequence is that people don't necessarily see that as helpful. If it's actually a value to do that and not a scare tactic for some other reason, but how do we determine that? You know, I want to ask you guys this because um, I I don't remember it. Um, when AIDS first came out, wasn't that the was that as big as well? We didn't wear masks and stuff. No, the difference with AIDS—that's really an important point. Right, the difference with AIDS, at least from my perspective, was that was that was something based on a particular activity. Right. So if you, if you, right. If you avoided sex, right, for certain kinds of sexual activities, then you wouldn't really have to be concerned. Not like an infectious disease like COVID is. Plus, it didn't hit the whole world. Right. Uh, this COVID is a completely unique event in human history. Not that there haven't been pandemics before. There have. But not in the age of information. Not at this level of population. Not at this level of other worldwide threats. So, no, I think this is a unique event, and this has gone on for two years, right? And it's not over. And as much as people would like to think it's over and there's no problem, simply not true. I'm very much on the inside of science on this and the people that work on it. The good news is the technologies are evolving. But the approach to, to handle this by vaccines is actually not the most fruitful approach. The most fruitful approach is actually exactly what I do. It is to enhance the immune system. You want to supercharge your immune system, so it doesn't matter what virus you think we're done with pandemics. We're not done. All right. This I, is I think way. that I think everybody in this room is a one hundred percent belief that we can heal ourselves better than any medicine can do. I believe that. Plant, okay. Plants and yeah, stuff no, like that. Right. I agree with you completely. Uh, I don't believe we need medication. Uh, I, I don't, don't either. We believe that we need surgeries, but which of us have been taught how to do that? Let me ask this, Debbie. I just had surgery. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. I had, yeah. yeah, yeah, what's up? No medicines are necessary. People can heal themselves. But are certain plants necessary? Or can could we heal without anything? Not even Mother Nature's what it gives us to heal things. Could we do it just on mental work? Uh, Debbie Allen, well, everybody chime in, please. My answer to that question would be that I think that, that humans are essentially composed of energy. I like right. his answer. I'm with him. All right. So <laughs> yeah, the other one, right? <laughs> if, if I knew how to, to make use of that energy, I can be any physical shape I want. I can repair any damage caused to the system. I think that that is part of human, that is part of the human legacy that we've yet to inherit because the world turned in a material direction hundreds of years ago and most of it based on greed. So in some societies, no, in some societies, the emphasis has been on spiritual development, right? It's one of the reasons why I love the martial arts. The martial arts are all about exceeding what you think your limits are. So 
I think to answer your question, Neil, that, yeah, I don't know all the ways to do that. But I do know that <laughs> I did an experiment years ago. I'm smiling when I think about it because it actually worked out better than I thought it would. I thought I'd develop a psychic ability and, and test it scientifically. So I decided to see if I could become psychically gifted at finding lost objects. Hmm. All right. So the interesting thing is I tested this. I checked it across time. And in the beginning, it was what most people do, sort of logical, ask questions. I realized at some point that the more I thought about it, the less likely it was I'd find something. So instead, I got into the habit when a person said, I've lost my keys. What I did was. Oh, Ooh. Ooh. he lost more than his keys. This has been a, well, a, a troubled podcast. I mean, I was losing well, my signal. Now he's lost his. Oh, my goodness. Here's Okay. I, I'm gonna say I agree with, I agree with that. Heal the documentary kind of uses many different modalities and things like that. And I love that he's talking about using your, the, the power of our mind and the power of our, of our ability to heal ourselves. And to, to address Neil what you said till he gets back, it's very, to me, it's simple. I, think uh everything has its place i think plant medicine has its place i think that there's been enough studies now shown that doing things like ayahuasca under a controlled setting um like over at rhythmia uh can can supercharge this this the the healing process in the mind sort of a reset but here's the thing i was just talking to hey alan welcome back Sorry, hit the hit the wrong button for a change. <laughs> it happened. So I was just talking about the fact that that I think that there's a there's a place for plant medicine depending on the situation, and that there's been enough proof with with psychedelics from mushrooms to ayahuasca. Uh, Rhythmia has a really safe place you can do uh, do that with medical supervision, and all of that's great to reset those neural pathways, which is what that that it does, and. But without practices and without actually changing belief systems and having that daily, that daily routine, the new structure, the new commitment to yourself, all of those things that plant medicine would be, it doesn't matter. You could do ayahuasca from here to, to the moon and back and it's not going to do you any good. That's what I think about it. But before we get out of time, I, I want to I get your opinion on that, but I do have a question from somebody that I need to ask you to. Sure. Take it away. Or do you want me to answer the question first? Yeah. What's your, your vibe on plant medicine? And then I'll ask you the, the question from someone. As far as I can tell, it's hard to imagine anybody could do a better job of designing an environment for human beings and other creatures to live in. Right? Everything about this environment is a gift. So that includes plants. That includes martial arts are based on learning from creatures in nature. Right? Mm. The mantis technique, the, the eagle claw. Right. These are based on observations. So I don't make the distinction. Plants, other things in the environment, patterns, patterns of light on order. As far as I'm concerned, that's all part of what we are. So if I make use of those things, that's different than an artificial something that's created in a laboratory that is really not in alignment with us. That's why every, in order to have a medication that's patentable, though, you have to create something that's likely to cause a side effect, which is why marijuana <laughs> doesn't work synthetically. Right. And you can't patent it in its natural form. And yet it's the one drug, if you're going to use for pain, that cannot kill you. So I think there's a place for it in the context of the gifts, the gifts of what we are, the gifts of what we have around us and making good use of all of it. I don't make a distinction between one versus another. I might be able to heal myself without using plants, but if plants are part of dealing with that, then why not? If it's natural, if it's part of an organic arrangement. If it's That's such line. a great answer. Boom. That was a beautiful answer, and I appreciate it so tremendously. It's very, very well, well spoken. But I really want to ask this important question about chronic pain, fibromyalgia, and mold illness, lasting symptoms, and going on in this person's body for what seems like the last 15, 20 years, and this person really wanting relief from from all of it. Period. At this point, that's that's the question. That's what can what do we? I don't know. It's not the question. Just Debbie, you've been digging in my emails. 
<laughs> nah, dude. I swear to God. Where you get my question from? <laughs> that was your question? That's my... Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that question, actually, no, that question is from somebody who's one of my heart babies, and I don't know. Sorry, love, but That's you're one of my heart babies, too, so okay. Let's go. All it's right. A good question, I'll, I'll tell you how I'd answer the question, okay? Of course, the patients I've seen, I work with people with those problems. Uh, I work with people with just about any kind of problem you can imagine, you know, including other things like MS, Parkinson's, cancer, other things, but... The bottom line is, remember what I said, this is about mastery, right? Now, can that person with fibromyalgia or some mold infection, can they be more operational? Can they restore functioning? Can they have less impact from what's going on? Absolutely. The same formulation always, always works in that direction. If the person's willing to engage in self-discovery and what I talk to people about is an upgrade in the operating system, they're not broken. But let's optimize the system so you can get the best benefit. Uh, the impact that has on conditions, I'm working with somebody that has Parkinson's, whose level of functionality changed by 100% in a year and a half of the work that we did together. Wow. The person was completely disempowered, completely negative in her thinking, completely down on herself, completely invested in a decline that was inevitable. Well, she doesn't think that way at all anymore. And so she's more able to function. Yeah, she still has Parkinson's. She still has symptoms. But if I hadn't met her, who knows? So it's not a panacea and it's not a magic cure. Like I said, how much of your life do you want to retain? How willing are you to fight to have as much of your life back as you can have? Not what's the magic cure for my pain problem? I'm going to need the magic cure. There's my, I'm, there's my, there's my heart, baby, right there. You You're welcome, baby girl. I love you. <laughs> I am Alan. Please, I am specific. What I call the mental exercises, affirmations, morning rituals, anything I do with my mind, with the purpose in making something better, uh, uh -huh. be it my health, wealth, my love, my happiness, my kids' report cards, by you know looking at his old great report cards, trying to produce a better one. Any mental exercises I can leave this live stream with and do. Yeah. yeah. I'll give you one that's really straightforward. Uh, I've recently thought a lot about peace of mind. People often bring that up. What does it take to have peace of mind? So here's what I suggest. I think the path to peace of mind is experiencing everything that happens as an opportunity for mastery. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So then it doesn't matter whether what happens is like likable or not. And it's not to say people don't want to do that, but I don't experience anything as anything short of a challenge for mastery. So look at, like for me, neck herniation right now, flaring. Uh, look at that as an opportunity to master. Yeah, and that mastery might depend on looking at the treatment that you're getting or the reasons why it's working or not or the things you might do to help you. The book is complicated and detailed because there's a lot of things you can do. So if you were to look at physical impact in the book, where there are a number of chapters on, you'd see a lot of suggestions for how you can do things. For example, my chiropractor calls me the Tin Man, all right? Because I have, I have a number of problems with my lower back and whatever. He goes like, if you stop training, which I don't, I still train a lot and consistently and go to the dojo, he said, you'd be falling apart, right? He says, just keep training, right? So for example, just maintaining physical conditioning and keeping sure that every part of your body that you can still work on is is as good as it can be make a huge difference, right? But physical therapy, as you know, does not say physical therapy is the intermediate step. The next step is reconditioning, right? They don't tell you that going, before you come into physical therapy, you probably need to get reactivated because most times people are shut down before they make it to PT. So to try and answer your question, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done to change the dynamic of how you relate to what's going on. How much that's going to affect the pain you have. But if I asked you, if you had to choose between having less pain or higher functioning, what would you choose? Less pain or higher functioning? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. What would you say, Debbie? Higher functioning. Yeah. Well, what about you? I don't choose one or the other. I choose both. <laughs> yeah, but you have to make a choice. Which one would you choose? 
I, I, I want to be high, as high functioning as I, I can I, be. I, I yeah, if, I, I, if I had to choose, I would choose high functioning. Yeah, I can look, deal with pain. <laughs> pain is not a uniform experience, okay? Uh, soldiers who get shot, I can't imagine fighting after I've been shot, right? It's not a uniform experience at all. I'd rather focus on restoring functioning, empowerment, right? optimization of how I can operate as a human being, that can make a huge difference in how you perceive pain. It's the first thing I hear from my patients. I may not have any less pain, but I don't feel the same way about it. Right? It's not having the same impact on me emotionally, psychologically. It's a well, huge, big deal right there. You know, okay, can I, can I, okay, I have to jump in and say this because I believe this, I know this. Having almost died, having all these things that have happened to me in my life physically, it is traumatic as heck. I promise it is so traumatic to to have chronic pain from those traumatic things. It's like that trigger is just happening constantly. It just doesn't stop. What I'm loving is that you have solutions to 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 make that to give us the tools to make that stop. Yeah. And it's necessary. So everybody that's ever had something happen to them realize that get, I get you like he gets you. We get you. You understand. We understand. So this is really vital stuff right now, and I and I just know there's a couple people listening right now that need to hear this, and I hope that what you're hearing is that there's hope. I also want to know more a little bit about the gut because I do know that, that I've heard some stuff lately that have really been focusing on our gut health and our chronic pain. What's your vibe? Well, I don't ignore the, physic- the, the physiological part of this. I mean, I'm always looking at the latest advances in science, the latest understanding of the physiological side of it. Yeah. Uh, that's very important. Uh, and there can be a lot of help when you do that and take a much broader perspective on how the system works. Uh, but even the immune system, do you think that we really understand how that works and why it works and what it's designed for? How many people know they have an endocannabinoid system that's designed to function in, re- in alignment with marijuana? Well, why in the world do we have an endocannabinoid system? Well, it's another regulatory system in our body, in our system, right? That's so right. I think the, the combination of understanding the physicality of things and the rest of it, that's what's powerful. I don't ignore the physical part of it at all or physical options. Matter of fact, I encourage my patients to stay in touch with the latest developments in the science of their problem so that they have more hope. And they realize the medical, the medical community is on an incredible upward spiral. So who knows what's going to be possible 10 years from now? I'm going to download my consciousness into an Android body. I was just that's, watching that that's movie what the other I'm night. What, what was that? Yeah, I mean, why not? You know, <laughs> you guys, <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. All right, Alan, I want to know the called, name of this book again. Yeah, it, <laughs> New Possibilities. Is that it? The book is New Possibilities Unraveling the Mystery, which is really understanding what's happened to you, right, and mastering chronic pain. And are you All taking right. new patients in Washington, where you're at? Yeah, I still see patients, but frankly. Like I said, it's it's really exposure to this approach and having people become aware. And a lot of the things I do, I could help people by consulting with them, not seeing them as a patient. A lot of it's educational. Uh, so if this approach makes sense, if you can see where it could potentially really empower people struggling with chronic problems, that's the whole goal behind this. But certainly, yeah, I see patients uh, in the state of Washington and New York. But it's really more I want this model out there. I want people to know what's really going on. Took seven years to get this book together. Congratulations! I celebrate you. Yes, yeah. I, I also, I, it's probably t- too late to bring this in. Uh, when, when you got cut off there, you, you were starting to say th- something about what the key was, and Luke was asking oh, what was yeah, the key. Yeah, saw that. Luke. And I'm not even sure if you remember what point you were making. So, but I'll just it's, throw it out just in case. Where you I was talking about the true meaning of life because I kind Maybe. of forgot. I'm not sure. Like, yeah, oh, no. I mean, it was a while back. Yeah, I don't know. I lost I lost the track, so I'm not sure what that was. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, I, I figured it was a shot in the dark, but why not? We'll take a shot. Just the, I know the key. I know the key. I know the key. Okay. Yeah. I know the key. The key is gratitude. The key well, that's true. is grateful beingness. The key yes. is appreciation. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you're pointing to that, Neil. I, I have a suggestion. If, uh, have you ever heard of somebody called Reverend Charles Barker? No. no. Take a look at a book called Treat Yourself to Life. It was done in the 70s. If you want to be exposed to somebody who not only understands what that says, but actually practices it in a way that people don't know about. You know, for example, if, if I want new patients, I just sit, simply say, I have new patients. I don't wish for them. I, I don't wish for them. I, I do it. 
I don't affirm it. It is. And why is that? Because I'm the creator. You're the creator. All you have to do is channel it, but you have to like find, oh, it was about finding things, right? I find things when I don't try and find them. I open myself up to the fact that I'm connected to everything. Right. I want to, I'm going to, I want to ask you something real quick. I know we're at an hour, but there's some new I'm working on. I'm only three or four days in. I don't know what to call it. It's something, but I'll give you a, a general gist. It's called jinxing things into existence. Okay. So you know how like you're being so overly confident about something and then it ended up failing and you're, and every, and everybody's like, see that talking trash or you spoke too soon. So what I'm doing is. I'm trying to be overly confident about something. And when I get to that point where I feel like I'm being disrespectful to God and he might not give it to me, I push further. Because I thought about what that would do to my psyche and what other people are doing that. Well, let's see, athletes, actors, they're all pushing through that point of blasphemy. So that's the new practice. Uh, I don't want to call it jinxing things into existence, but basically you're going to that point where you feel like you're almost disrespecting God. Cause, and you know, that's something instilled in us as, as, as child, as children. Um, I definitely don't feel that way now, but it's still buried deep. So I'm trying to push past that point and see how great it is at producing. I'm trying to find the number one manifesting uh, well, mental exercise of all times. I, I think I'm time here, but think a quick thought on that, because that's really important. And I'm, completely with you on this, except I think about it a little bit differently, right? I don't know what, what's supposed to happen with this potential, but if I'm, if I have that as part of what it means to be human, I assume that's by design, whether it's spiritual design or something else, then what's that for? Does that mean I'm supposed to limit what I do with that potential? Does that mean I have to limit who I can become or what I can have in my life? Uh, I'm only concerned with what I consider good intention, so I don't want to cause harm. But short of that, anything I'm capable of getting to do that I can bring into the world, especially things that are beneficial to other people, right? I just want to allow that to manifest. So I don't know that there's a violation of any covenant with the creator in allowing yourself to see what your potential can manifest. I think it's more about whether you think what you're doing with that is of value or not. What do you think? That's good. By the way, Luke also... uh, he followed up on uh, the point that he was trying to remind you about. He said at the time that you got cut off, um, you were saying something like, if somebody loses their actual house key rather than focusing on finding the key, and you're, you're right. making some sort of reference to the psychic super ability to become the finder. Right. And that, that was the idea that I stopped trying to think about it. I just, you tell me the keys are missing, I go walk to it. And I can't tell you why I know where to go, but I let it happen. I have to get out of my own way. And I think that's what you're talking about, Neil. As soon as I get out of my own way, things happen. And it's it got to the point where people are going like, there's no way you could do that. And not just locally. You tell me something's missing in your house, I'll tell you where it is. But then it got even more so. I could find other things that weren't just objects. So I think that's an example of a manifestation of something we're all capable of. I think it's a great place to stop. This has been fabulous. But uh, Dr. Weiser, first of all, thank you for spending this time with us and sharing your your really interesting viewpoint on on how we can learn to master pain. I think it's a fabulous thing that you're doing. So thank you for taking the time to do that with us today. Thank you. I really, this is so much fun, guys. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. That was a blast. Thank you so much. We appreciate you very much. You got to come speak at my summit. Everything you just said. It was so much fun, right? Just let me know. And I've got relatives all over the country. Nice. And Debbie, what's coming up uh, over the weekend with uh, Women Rising? I will be on Unify tomorrow with uh, Unify Women Rising. We're going to be talking about relationships and compassionate communication, which is going to be way cool stuff. And we have a self-love fest that we are launching, and you guys need to watch for that. And a big, huge announcement. Spirituality Gone Wild has joined forces with Humanities Team. So soon... Oh, this is this is going to be cool. So soon, those of you that have the Humanities Team dot uh, org subscription, hello, the new Gaia. You will see uh, Cup of Gratas and Symphony of Gratitude and some other shows listed underneath there. So it's going to be super. It's going to be super cool. I'm excited about it. It's way. It's way rad. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. I quantum leap that stuff. I don't even know what y'all are doing. I'm just quantum jumping. <laughs> 
Oh, my vibration, video. my frequency. You shine. You just, yeah. dude, I'm going to show you what the trick is. trick is just be. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, Dr. Weiser, thank you so much. Debbie G and Neo Positivity, as usual. You guys are wonderful. Thank you to podcast listeners everywhere. We will see you all next time here on LOA Today. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.